0: You are listening to the After the Timeout podcast, hosted by Todd Zazadil and John Pulicki, two high school head coaches looking to help others spread their passion for the game of basketball. Tune in for episodes about anything basketball-related, on the court, off the court, and anything in between.
1: On today's episode, we are joined by Coach Tony Miller, uh, awesome guest. We're super excited to have him on. Uh, man of many hats, assistant coach at Bob Jones University, host of the Quick Time Out podcast. Um, does this awesome stuff on fast model. Uh, I believe just saw it started a new uh, segment, uh, the Hoop Forum, right? Uh, with Coach Coach Sherman. Uh, Coach, we, we really appreciate being on. Uh, how are you doing? And, and thank you for joining us.
2: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for inviting me on.
0: Thank you for having us. Uh, so we are going to start off with, you talked to so many coaches about their systems and concepts, but let's let's dig into, for you, what are your favorite systems and concepts? And then kind of what's the style for you guys at Bob Jones?
2: it's been something that's evolved over the years. I started coaching in college, uh, back in 2012. And when I started, I, I didn't have any experience at the college level. Uh, the coaches that I had admired growing up where I was from North Carolina. So guys, um, like coach K and at the time, uh, Roy Williams. And so my, my background was kind of varied, but it had been something where I had, I had Viewed coaches from afar rather than being hands-on and learning from somebody. So it wasn't like like I had played for somebody and and this was the system now that I was going to do because my coach did it that way. So it was really just kind of here and there and picking and and that's one of the things. Just learning is an important part of who I am and and being that continual learner and uh, I've tried always to kind of pick from the best and so I I really have ended up with just kind of a, a mishmash of of different. Uh, styles. And so as I kind of went through those first few years, the head coach that came in, he had his system and had some things and we were starting out as a brand new program. So deciding what we were going to be and forming our own identity, which was a little bit different because I didn't go into a situation where there had been an established coach and established program and players who had already been there. So it was really neat to kind kind of grow with the program. Uh, at the time, it was just myself, another assistant, and then the head coach, and so we had we had just kind of tried to look into different things that um, that were out there and kind of being hopefully on some of the cutting edges uh, edge with some things. Uh, we kind of because the two coaches, the other head coach or the head coach and the other assistant, were from the Midwest. They had. Uh, kind of been around pack line defense so we started out our program with pack line defense and we were that way for about the first six or seven years offensively it seemed kind of like it wasn't that didn't change every year but we were just trying to add things along the way Uh, we kind of landed on read and react offense so we did a lot of read and react the first few years Um, did several of the layers those of you that know read and react we didn't do all of the layers but um, i think god threw about introduced Mm -hmm. up to about the first seven or eight um and and here there had sets too as well and um, the other assistant had kind of had some connections to kansas so we did a lot of their inbounds plays and that sort of thing so you know like i said it it wasn't like one set thing and and it was neat because we got to as i said before kind of grow with the program and some things worked and other things you know, didn't work and we were able to, to figure out what would fit to our players. And obviously we didn't have an identity as a program as far as the kinds of players that we were recruiting in. So like there were just a lot of factors that allowed us to kind of be fluid those first few years and um, had success here. The athletic directors, our program there at the university grew and the new head coach that was brought in was actually a friend of mine previously, and we'd have known each other before that and had some connections. So I ended up just going on and as his assistant, which looking back and those of you that know how college sports works, like that doesn't usually happen. You get a new head coach, he brings in his own staff, um, but, you know, different situation for various reasons. And so um, the new head coach had some things that he he wanted to do. But when he first came in, we had a lot of the players left over from the, the previous coach, And they were really good players and so we didn't want to in their final year final two years kind of introduce brand new things and uh it showed some real wisdom on his part and so we we did a little bit more of you know kind of numbered numbered cuts and numbered you know number for screenaways and flares and that kind of thing so really it was kind of basic but we had good players and we ended up that year winning over 20 games and uh, we lost in the national championship game by two points in like the last two seconds of the game. Um, but once those players graduated, we went full blown into more like conceptual offense for offense. And so um, long story short, I had some connections and I I would, my in-laws were only like nine minutes from Doug Novak up at Bethel university. And um, that was the, that was the coach, the main coach that, my head coach, his, he was interested in running his offense. So we spent some time up there with coach Novak. And since then I've been fortunate enough to kind of develop a little friendship with him. And so I've learned a lot through him, from him and, um, from some others as well. And so kind of that conceptual offense on, on offense. And then on the defensive side have, have done a little bit more of like a modified pack line defense. It's not really pack line. It's more of like, um, gap and, just trying to play to our player strengths. And, um, a lot of it too has been analytics driven. I am, uh, we do every year a disc assessment and the disc assessment shows that I am more of an analytical thinker. And, uh, and so from that perspective, tying in things that are being prevalent at the high college level and professional level, you know, we're, we're a very unique university. And so we try to get any kind of edge that we can get. And so Catering those things and tailoring those systems to those analytics and then also to bigger picture what we're wanting to do on offense and defense has kind of left us where we're at right now with our with our philosophy on both sides of the ball. And, you know, obviously, we're always willing to change and adapt and whatnot, but I'm, I'm really happy with where we're at right now. And the, the head coach and I, I think, are kind of like perfecting what we have. And with the players that we have bringing in, I'm really excited to see kind of where it goes this next year. So it's kind of a long, long answer to your question, but hopefully that kind of shows the thought process behind uh, how we got to where we're at right now.
1: Oh, I think every coach tries to go through that thought process and has those, whether it's high school, you know, high school gets a new guys coming up and they got to adapt a little bit. Um, So you mentioned Right, you started from scratch, and then you kind of started over again. New coach, new system. So, we're thinking just offense as a whole. Introducing it, putting stuff in. Um, you, know, you got you got five guys on the floor. Are You starting with system? Are you breaking breaking down the concepts, um, drills, one on one? You know, how do you start that process going when you're putting in all of the stuff you want to get in, or your your system or whatever it may be.
2: Offensively, fundamentally, it really is about finishing around the basket, being able to shoot from outside and then decision making. And so with those three kind of building blocks, everything else goes on top of it. So the foundation of those three skills, then how can we teach those three skills? And it's been interesting because the first year that we ran this, it was new to all of us. The second year that we ran this, we had half of our team were freshmen. And really this coming year, because of how many young players we had and some injuries and whatnot, we're going to add about eight or nine more new players. So I'm going to get three years in a row to almost start, not from scratch. It's gotten easier each year because of returners that we had and they've, they've uh, known the system and that kind of thing. But what we found is when we start with those fundamental finishing moves, which we have about nine that we use, um, we'll teach them the finishing moves to start with. Um, And then we'll start introducing some of the concepts within that conceptual offense. And it really is basic. There are some basic points to it. And it's about spacing, creating space on the floor, um, creating double and triple gaps for guys to drive in and teaching them where to drive, how to read, where is the right place to drive, what to look for. And so we very quickly get to small sided games. So we'll do a lot of with the finishing, for instance, we'll do one V one and putting players either at an advantage on offense or an advantage on defense. Typically on offense, you have the advantage Um, and then making the right read for the finish. And then we'll do another part of another section. Another session of practice will be more of like two on two. And so you're just reading a secondary help defender, making the right pitch uh, or making the right read for the finish. And then we'll do a little bit three on three where we add that third player so that now you've got another extra pass to make or another extra help defender to read. We do a lot of three on three, especially the first probably month and a half of practice, because I I feel like three on three is enough that you can read. Um, To put it another way, when you're out on the floor, a lot of times you're in three on three situations because of where the ball is placed. So you're really reading a primary defender, a second layer, and a third layer. Like very rarely are you reading a fourth layer. In most cases, you know, once you give up the ball, then you're just in another three-on-three scenario. So three-on-three exists in a lot of different places on the floor. Um, and then we'll add the four-on-four, and we'll we'll play five-on-five some, but not a lot of five-on-five. Um, it mostly is three-on-three, or somebody is at an advantage or disadvantage. So maybe a two-on-three or a three-on-two. And it really is about like placing guys to start with, putting some constraints on them. You can only dribble twice or you have to make a, you have to have a post touch before you finish or uh, we use a lot of time shot clock. So you only have seven seconds on the shot clock. You have to score within seven seconds or you have to get a shot up within seven seconds. So it, it that way you get a lot of reps. And I think all of us as coaches would agree, like you, you teach, you teach you teach a concept, but a player only gets better at it through repetitions. And so with doing those two on two, three on three players are getting a lot of repetitions in a 10 minute period or in a, we do a lot of times, six minute segments. And so this year we saw a very uh, uh, quick progression in their skills because we did so many three-on-three, two-on-two, they were getting so many reps in those six-minute sessions that they were able to quickly pick up on what we were trying to accomplish. And it's not that they, they perfected it by the sixth game or anything like that, but um, their, their understanding of what we were trying to accomplish, it's, it sped up a whole lot. Year two versus year one, so um, it's a lot of again just doing a lot of finishing, a lot of shooting, a lot of decision making, putting them in decision making situations, and that comes through. Just so that uh, somebody that's listening to this doesn't isn't confused. It's not just you know three on three. We have a guy up at the top, two guys at the wing. We check it up and we play three on three. We're always putting somebody at an advantage or a disadvantage so that's so that there's a, a required situation for the maybe in offensive case the defense to help. So that we are making the right either pitch or the right finish breeding our primary defender there. So, yeah, a, a lot of three on three, a lot of two on three. Um, we get to that very quickly. And then five on five is, is very rare, especially early on until we get to, you know, the last 15 minutes of practice. And we'll do a five minute session or a four minute segment or um, we do a whole lot of three possessions. So we'll start with maybe an inbounds play play five on five, go to the other end, play five on five and come back and finish five on five. And that's the end. And we'll talk through things, how they do, what they saw, what they could have done differently. All right. Three possessions again. Um, And so that's really the only five on five. We very rarely just put six minutes or eight minutes or 10 minutes on the clock and play five on five at the end of practice. So, you know, I I think one of the things that scares coaches sometimes when they hear a lot of three on three or five on five is I don't have as much control over this. My players aren't just, able to handle it. And that's not really the case if it's done well and done correctly. Um, And it does make for sloppier practices, which is coaches. A lot of coaches don't like that. They want their practices to look pretty and to run according to what's on their three by five card or whatever. Um, But I think we all, would agree that real learning takes place when the learning is in the hands of the learner, they're making mistakes. You know, we talk about, you know, losing is great because it teaches you lessons. And then we go against what we say in practice. We want everything to be done right every single time. And when it's not, we yell at the players. So um, just allowing your players to make mistakes and allowing them to make mistakes sometimes a lot in those reps. Uh, that's the best way for them to learn. So um, I hope that answer your quest- answers your question.
1: No, that's 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 perfect. And you kind of transitioned talking about small-sided games into kind of what we wanted to talk about next. Uh, you know, you talked about your players adapting really quickly in those small-sided games. Uh, and I feel like, you know, that became even more important this year because of the limited time most programs had. You know, like in here in Illinois, we had – We said, they said, you're playing, you got two weeks, you know, we hadn't played since October ago. Um, so you gotta, you gotta kind of find a way, but, but just in the bigger picture, um, tying the small side of games into systems and what you're doing, uh, talk about the process you guys use to kind of, to kind of figure out the emphasis of those small side of games, maybe the rules, the constraints, uh, you know, what you're adding, subtracting, taking away.
2: Yeah, so it all base it's based off of their positions when they come down the floor. So we will typically line up in the slots. If we're playing five out, then somebody's in the stretch, which is basically you take a take a pencil and just draw off the free throw line out to the sideline. It's around the coach's box and then your two corners there. And so if it's three on three, a lot of times we'll maybe go slot, slot, corner, and start with the ball in one of the two slots, make the pass, run the slice cut off of it, and then play out of that and like i said before what's happening is you're you're essentially putting them in spots that they would find themselves in a game but something is happening very quickly they have to make a decision within those 6 seconds make a read and so you end up getting like i said before a lot of reps and that's the game like essence of it is that in the game they're having to there, there's no on air business like we're not just doing a random finishing move for 25 minutes like we may do a finishing move to warm up with but we're throwing them into the fire right away And I think that's where the accelerated learning and being able to translate it over quicker to a game comes in is that you are, you are putting them in repetitions that they're not, they're not even only getting repetitions in the skills, but they're getting repetitions in game-like situations, which I feel like most practices are missing. They're doing some, but they're not maximizing their time with those game-like repetitions. So how can, where can I put them in game? So if you're playing a four out one in and one of your primary um, you know, offensive strategies is to get your post player a touch. We'll start your th- start your three on three with somebody throwing the ball into the post and allow the ball to get into the post. So once the ball gets in, that's one of the constraints. So the defense, you're not live until the post player touches the ball. So we'll do something like that. And we worked on something this last year where doubling the post, we double the post. So we would let the ball go into the post. We'd go down and double the post which would force the post player to then make a game-like decision of either throwing the ball out of the post or quickly recognizing that a double team was coming and make a move. So I guess essentially what I'm saying, it kind of goes back to that old part-whole-part business that coaches would often talk about. And what are the parts that make up the whole? I can now turn that part into a small-sided game. Um, And so, you know, whether that modified game is a we want to get a post touch or that modified game is we start with the we start the three on three with a ball screen or um, we it starts with a skip pass or it starts with a pass out of the post. um, One that I just posted on Twitter yesterday. We want to work on that dagger three that everybody talks about. So when the ball is rebounded, it's kicked out. The defense is scurrying because everybody was paying attention to the offensive rebound. And what typically happens is on the pass out. The defense will recover to the shooter. But what ends up happening is another guy's left wide open. So can I get my players to recognize that one more pass that's wide open and make the extra pass and then the player be ready to catch and shoot that shot? So we would just break it down by starting out with three players on offense, two players on defense, throw the ball up. Put the defensive rebounder at the disadvantage. So maybe start with them already buried underneath of the basket so that it's almost guaranteed that the offensive player will grab the offensive rebound. Recognizes now that there's a defender in front of me. Well, I can't go back up with it. I need to turn and find an open teammate because there's only one defender out there guarding two people. Somebody's going to be open. And when that Defensive defensive player recovers to the guy on the outside. We make the one more pass and then we shoot a shot that took all of literally six seconds. So now I can get another repetition and now we're just constantly practicing dagger threes. And I'll just use that as an example. That's a drill that we just introduced this last year. And it was fun to see after just a few practices, guys got excited about dagger threes. And so you'd you'd hear them say in a real game, they'd catch the ball, they wouldn't get it, they'd kick it back out, make the one extra pass, and some guy would yell something about a dagger three. And then it transferred over to games like that. And I just think that's one of those things where when you actually practice those things a lot, Kids do actually start doing them and they recognize then that what we're practicing in practice does transfer over to games and you actually see players get better. And I, I feel like a lot of times coaches get mad because, well, we talked about that one time or we worked on that one time. Yeah, but most of your players didn't get repetitions, even practicing dagger threes. They saw it in a drill or we did it three on O, but I didn't actually do it in a real game. And so I just feel like the transfer of going from those practices, small sided games to five on five. Happens quicker when players see it and get have success um, through multiple repetitions. So, you know, the, the bigger idea is like maximizing your time. What can I do in an hour if I'm just going on air or if I'm just going skill work versus what can I accomplish in an hour if I'm doing small sided games and getting reps and practicing multiple skills in one drill? Um, so that's probably the bigger picture that we're we're trying to look at with the small sided games.
1: Okay, so I want to narrow it down even more. You talked about on air and working on those individual skills. Um, you know, I I, I believe one on one has a lot of value too when you're trying to work work on those. I just think back to when I went when I was a kid. I'd go to the yeah. Y, you'd find some guy to play with he's holding you better than you, and you you'd play. Um so you know maybe your kind of thoughts on that and how you can use that too i I, that's a version of a small-sided game it's just Mm -hmm. man on man um to kind of help with developing skills as opposed to being on air and and not having any decision making or or competition involved in that
2: one of the things that I sometimes overlook or sometimes don't mention, I don't want to give the wrong impression at the college level. It's a little bit different from high school. Uh, we have extra small groups. We call them individual workouts. Sometimes they're usually though, like two, two players or three or four players at an individual workout. That's typically when we do what you just described, like the one-on-one or working on we will sometimes, like if I, if I only have one guy at, at an individual workout, obviously I'm going on air. So it's not that I'm like, just, you know, poo-pooing those 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 on air or one-on-one it's just that once we get to our practices our practices are typically geared towards more team stuff you know i'm not having them work on dribbling and passing and you know if you're working with a younger group more on air more skill work um you know it's there's not anything wrong with that For, for us That's typically when those one on ones and I totally agree with you. It's how I got better playing a a friend of mine who was a lot better shooter or quicker than I was. Um, You know how we typically do it in those one on ones, how we set them up. Even if you don't have somebody that's equal skill to you, again, using the advantages and that can be as simple as if I'm slower than you are or you're bigger than I am. I give that kid that's smaller and not as fast a little bit of an advantage. So we'll go with him with his – we start with each other on our hip. So I'm on your hip. You're on my hip. On the bounce, I get to be the first one that initiates movement. Or, you know, you may have seen some where the defender is standing with – he's facing the basket, and I have the ball in the center of his back. When I take the ball off, he has to turn around and defend. Well, if I turn it off and trick you and you go left and you go right, then I have an advantage. So there, there are, there are ways of, I think sometimes again, people think one-on-one, I just check it up. You're in front of me and well, I can't get by you. So a kid just jacks up a shot. There are ways to adapt those, even even those types of drills to get them, give a kid success. Because again, you want to give kids success and allow them to have it's, There's also an element of fun that goes with it. If I can get them competing and having fun and having at least some success, the the kid may be the worst kid on the team and slow as Christmas. Well, I'm going to back up his defender to half court if I need to, like I'm going to give that kid an opportunity to succeed. And even then maybe the kid may catch up with him, but he may use, he'll start using a head fake, right? Um, He'll start, he'll, he'll figure out a way kids aren't stupid. They'll figure out a way to at least achieve some success on the floor, or if they're not, then give them some suggestions. Hey, next time, why don't you go into his body a little bit more? Why don't you give him a head fake on that next one? Or, Whatever. So, again, I I think there there are things that you can do and and ways to teach and help them along. But I want them to learn on their own because that's going to stick with them better than me just telling them all the time. If I'm the one that's giving them solution, it's like the kid that's in the class where the teacher always gave them help and helped them figure out the math problem. And then we wonder why he doesn't get any better at math. Well, it's because you're helping him all the time. Stop helping him, like give him some suggestions. But don't, don't give him the answers all the time. And too many times in coaching, we want to give the answers because we want to either show how smart we are or we just don't have time for it. So we just need to give them the solutions. And that's what you're not helping players in the long run. We need to do that. So, um, yeah, I, I think problem solving the decision making, giving them situations where they're they're allowed to make mistakes and allowed to learn. Um but there is, nothing, there is nothing wrong with going on air. It's just if that's the only thing that we're doing, then you're probably going to see some deficiencies uh, once you get to more game-like situations.
0: So, Coach, let's go into um, kind of just as a, as a contributor and a college coach, you know, you, there's so much content out there. You know, uh, Randy Sherman, who we have on as a future guest coming up, you work with, with Hoops Forum, would advocate for that deletion party. You know, kind of take us through, you know, how do you how do you sift through all that? And then there's so many things um, that are just difficult sometimes for high school coaches to run. What you know, what would you suggest to them?
2: Obviously, looking at your personnel, like what what's good for our team, um, I uh, where the game is going a lot is this conceptual offense. I think sometimes coaches would say, well, my players aren't smart enough to do that. I, I don't think that's accurate. I think that if you look into it a little bit more you can you can find ways to teach it so that it is adaptable to really anybody but I think the biggest one is personnel and knowing what your team is and what kind of kids you have and and then it's like picking it, it's sticking to something and picking something and then sticking with it and I've had coaching friends of mine who like they're just always changing something every year, looking for the magic formula, or the magic offense that's going to win you games. And if you really would, if I were to ask that that coach, you know better. What's the thing that actually wins you games? We all say it's the Jimmys and Joes, like it's not the X's and O's, but we still want to find whatever that system is that's going to solve all of our problems. And so I think the real answer to that is like, what are you doing for player development? How are you actually getting your players better? Can they shoot? Can they finish around the basket? And can they make decisions as what I was just talking about to you before, like if your players can't do those things and if your drills and your practices aren't designed to get those players better at those things, then I don't care what you're running, like it's not going to work. So find something that fits with you that you enjoy, that you can be passionate about, like, and then go all in on player development and helping them get better at running, whatever that system is. Um, It's not about contrary to even what I post on social media. I post a billion plays. I don't use all those plays. I just post those because I know coaches like them. It's not, it's not because I, I use all those plays. And I think if you use all those plays, you're not doing it right. So, you know, what, what, what can actually help my team win games? It's player development. Um, it, it's taking, it's not controlling, it's not using a joystick and controlling every single. Randy's gonna, I guarantee you, he's gonna talk about this because he and I spend a lot of time talking to each other. Like he's gonna talk about not controlling every action, not calling timeouts all the time, not being the one that's calling a play every time down the floor. It's putting, it, it's equipping your players with the skills that they need to be successful and then empowering them to do those whatever those things are. And when you tell most coaches that they're afraid of that, or they say, oh, my players can't do that, but it's because usually they don't want to spend the time or they don't feel like they have the time to develop those players. And so because of that, we're going to have a system or we're going to have plays or we're going to do something, whatever that something is to make up for the fact that my players aren't really that good. Um, And, you know, I, I understand that in a, we need to win and we win, need to win now culture. But the truth of the matter is, is that success, long-term success, is really only going to come if you take the time to develop your players and those things that I just mentioned. Uh, that's probably so, not what you wanted because you no. wanted to, me to give you the the secret to the magic play that's going to win no, you the game. No, so, no.
0: no. I think I, like I think like Sherman. I want as little as possible. So that was a yeah. beautiful answer. Thank you. All right. Yeah. No. I mean, it's just.
1: There's so many good people out there like you. I mean, there's right. there's any number of people. And, you know, coaches are like, you know, I was a young coach, too. And you saw, hey, yeah, that's good. And you throw it in your fast model. And you look back in two years, and you're like, well, I never used that. and I, I'm not going to run a flare, you know, whatever it may be, you know.
2: Whatnot. I think really this day and age, it, the skill for coaches is being able to sift through everything. That's the real skill. It's not about what you know and how much you know. It's what can I use? that will help my team or what can I take, you know, you can listen to a hundred clinics if you want to, but like go into that. What one thing can I take from my team that will be applicable to my team to help them get better? Um, And and I think probably most even presenters, I know that when I speak, like when I, when I have a session or opportunity to speak, I don't expect them to take everything, but I'm hoping just one thing, but it, it, it may be, it may be different for, for one of you guys than the other one. So something that I might say may be more applicable to one of you than the, than the other one. And I think that that's how you need to go into it as a coach, thinking I'm the one that's listening. I don't need everything that this coach is doing. I need to take maybe or learn one thing. And I even felt like that. And I think that that's part of the reason why a lot of coaches don't go to clinics anymore, which I would say, hey, don't don't just th- throw all of them out. I would say instead go into those things with a different mindset. For me, it got to the point where I'd sit through a lot of these sessions and I'd be, man, I, I already know most of this stuff. Or I'd sometimes like I, I already I, I've heard all this before, but it, it would I would pick up something during that session with maybe how somebody taught something or terminology that they used or how they simplified something in the way in which they presented that to their team or to the players out on the floor. And it was I think that's the teacher in me, like, how can I become a better teacher of the game? not how can I just get more knowledge. And I think too many times coaches will go into learning from a clinician or from a something that they pick up on. Like, I just need more information and it's not more information. It's how can I become a better teacher of what I already have, or how can I refine what I'm already doing and make it better through whatever you just gave me in that 30 minute session or whatever it is.
1: All right, so I wanna I wanna pick your brain a little bit on the organizational theme again. Now let's talk about uh, just at personal organization because you do so many things. You're you're you coaching. You got a podcast. You're fast model. You're teaching, um, and and I think it's important for coaches, right, to 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 figure out how to do it. You know, families, all that. So, what are your, some of the keys to your 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 time management? Um, You know, maybe you have some routines and systems that help you kind of, kind of put it all together because I feel like, especially now, uh, you know, a lot of times everybody's going everywhere. So I I think that's an important skill and I think everybody's always looking for a a little bit of help and and a little bit of a, you know, something that they can use and adapt to their own to to kind of help with time management and, and balance overall.
2: Yeah, priorities. I, I'm, I think that it's important for you to not view everything as being on the same plane. Um, and a lot of times people from the outside may look at even the things that all the things that I do and think that they're all on the same plane or all to the same level. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all know that that's typically not the case. There are things that take priority over other things. So for me behind the scenes, it's making sure that I have the right priorities in place. I've been fortunate to also to have which it looks like I'm doing a lot of different things. But if you actually examine it, I'm kind of doing just a couple things. It's just that they overlap a lot. And so I've been fortunate from that perspective. Like I teach at the university, but I teach, I'm in charge of the sport management program. I I teach a coaching, I just this today taught a coaching basketball class. Well, that's not any, a lot of the stuff that I do in that class is stuff that I've learned done in clinics like there's an overlap there you know i I teach it we have a master's program and i oversee the master's program and i teach a basketball class on that level well a lot of the things that i learn at some of these higher level clinics and whatnot i use for those guys um uh, two days ago i taught a class on analytics well i use analytics all the time in my coaching so a lot of it overlaps i mean even when it comes to like family Um, I would encourage coaches to, to make, make coaching a family, not job, but like a family calling, not just a personal calling. Um, and, and hopefully your wife is on board and your kids can be around it, but even influencing, I, I would think most coaches are in it not to win games, although that's important, but it's also to most importantly, build relationships with players and have lasting impact on them. And I think for this day and age, this culture, the young men need to see husbands that love their wives and that love their children, and um, you know, involve them in in their lives outside of work or even in work. So you'll see a lot of times if you see my social media, I've got I got a picture that I love of my son asleep on the bus on the way back from like a nine hour away way trip down in Florida, um, and he rode on the bus, and part of the trip he rode next to this state. Junior, like and the 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 Chris was you know having fun with Barrett and talking with them and they were doing stuff on his phone and that kind of thing. Like, the, I think it's good for the players too to be around family and young people and um, for them an opportunity to invest in my kids and for my family to invest in them. And so, really, I, I would encourage you: How can you weave the different sections of your life together to maybe maximize your time and uh, really prioritize like what matters? Even with the podcast, you know, a lot of the podcast has to do with me talking with coaches and building relationships. And those relationships help outside of having a podcast. I mean, it helps with <clears throat> connecting with with other coaches about ideas. Uh, some of those coaches call me up certain parts of the year and say, hey, I got a player on our team that's not really playing. Would you guys be interested in having in, in him coming and playing for you? Like so I, I think really, again, just. Inspecting what you're doing, prioritizing your time, what matters really, what doesn't. Um, I've been fortunate. A lesson that I learned not too long ago, but um, probably five or ten years ago, is to weed out stuff that doesn't matter. We we all have a lot more time than we think we do. We blow a lot of time on things that just don't matter. Um, So eliminating the times that just don't matter and maximizing the time that you do have. And uh, I think a lot of us would say we go to bed at night tired but I would you know, challenge you. Are you tired because you, you maximized your time that day or did you kind of waste your time? Did you just stay up late scrolling through my Twitter feed, looking at plays that aren't going to help you win games anyways, like like do stuff that matters. Um, and, and you can probably, uh, you'll probably have more time than you think you do.
0: So let, let's kind of do a little bit of a, a past present with you coach. So, Kind of take us to the beginning of your podcast. You know, kind of what led to it. Um, you know, what you've learned over the years from it, and then you know, as Todd said, you know, going forward for you with your podcast and Fast Model and the coaches' clinics and the Hoops Forum. You know, what's next for for Tony Miller? So, kind of start from the beginning and, and take us through what you're hoping to get through to next.
2: Like I said, a lot of it was just like an interest, and in, I enjoy making content, and I enjoy teaching. And really, that's kind of how the podcast started. It's different now. I do more interviews and I'm not really the one that's teaching on it. Um, although you could argue the hoops form that we do with Randy, we talk through things a little bit more. But most of the interviews are just me asking questions, which I, it's for me. I enjoy the learning aspect of it. It's just that it's good enough for content and and people are able to benefit from it as well, which I enjoy and I'm glad for. Um, you know, it is selfishly, it's uh, another opportunity for me to connect with other coaches and build relationships with them. And I've got to meet a lot of really cool people and, and uh, people that are doing some really cool things. And, um, so, you know, even, even the relationships that I've been able to build with the guys at Dr. Dish and some of the guys that are, that I work with, with them have actually become like internet friends. Um, fast model, the guy that runs fast model is, is one of my internet basketball friends now. And so we talk, pretty regularly. Um, and so like, it's just, it's been just an opportunity to build relationships. I think going forward, I I don't know that I'm not wanting to be a national radio podcaster, or national radio host or anything like that. I just enjoy talking with coaches and learning from coaches and building relationships with them. So even the work that I've been able to do with fast model has just been an enjoyment of watching games. I think some people think like, man, you spend a lot of time doing that. Like, um, you can probably, you guys can see this, the audience can't, but my face is lighting up. It's because I have a basketball game on, like I already have basketball games on. You just have to watch for plays and then scribble down a play and post it on, on the internet. It's not very difficult to do. Um, and that's opened the door for coaches to connect with me. Um, <clears throat> you know, a couple, a couple weeks ago, I was, it was, I think in the middle of the tournament or something like that. And somebody followed me and I clicked on, on my notifications and it was like Jerry Stackhouse. And so we ended up connecting and then he came on my podcast and talked to the nicest guy of all time. Like, 20 years ago when I'm watching Duke, North Carolina, I'm never thinking that I'm going to be talking to Jerry Stackhouse. It's just that those things have opened the door for me to connect with and build even relationships as small as they might be with a lot of really neat people. So I've been really grateful for it. And it's it's really cool. And especially in coaching, there are so many people that are just generous with their time and they want to help you out. There are more people like that than there are people that are just big time that won't take time for you. Um, especially at the college and the the high school level. So it's just been really neat to form relationships. Um, you know, another shameless plug, but we have this next week, <clears throat> a clinic that is basically just an outgrowth of a bunch of connections that I've made through the podcast and through through um through relationship building that way. So um it, it's kind of turned into a life of its own. I never thought that it would turn into something like this. But if you take the time to build genuine relationships with other people, neat things usually happen.
0: Todd and I couldn't agree more when we started it as a way just to talk basketball because we missed it during COVID and it, and it kind of snowballed. And we we have the same thing when we have we get certain guests and we're like, why is this first five years ago? This person had no idea who we are. Now they're on our show. But uh, so uh, the last two segments, the first one is after, uh, our uh, after the timeout segment that we've done with all of our guests. So I wanted to focus with you on. As an assistant coach, take us through your role in a timeout. What you know, what makes a, a great assistant coach during a timeout and, and what can young assistants do to, to support their head coach during timeouts?
2: Usually during the game, I'm watching for things in particular for us with our offense, like things like how many times the ball has crossed over the midline or how many passes we've had before a shot or how many paint touches we've gotten or maybe something that we had emphasized that week in practice. And so when the timeout comes, I just give that information very quickly to our head coach. Uh, We have a little bit longer timeout. So those of you that have watched college basketball, sometimes you'll see the coaches meeting before that. Um, we, we don't have as long as timeouts as the division ones have, although we do play several, some anywhere from three to four or five division one games per year. Um, those timeouts are really long. Uh, I remember the first time that we went into one, we hadn't like prepared for how long it was. And so we got done like waiting for the horn to go off and it didn't go off for another like 45 seconds. It felt like an eternity. So like even with those, you kind of go into the go into the timeout, let the guys go over and talk while us as a coaching staff kind of hit the main points of things that we want to talk about. Um, There'll be times this kind of comes with knowing your head coach and relationship with him. I mean, it's to the point now, kind of embarrassingly, that we're almost like a married couple sometimes as far as like thinking about the same kinds of things. So there'll be times and, and he's great about this. I think part of it is just because of our friendship, even before basketball. And, um, you know, our, our relationship with with off the court as well, we hang out, our families hang out together and that kind of thing. Um, but there'll be times where we go to a timeout and he's just like, hey, go tell him what you need to. We've, we've kind of split things up where I will at times do more of the defense. Um, other times I'll do more of the offense, depending on what what is being talked about. And so he'll just say, hey, just go go tell the guys what you need to tell them. So I'll be the one that takes the timeout and, and talks up something or a certain point of the game. Um, I know not all staffs have that kind of relationship, so it may be a little bit different. But for us, it's just like how well, how can we get the important information to them and, and what do we need to focus, focus on um, in, in this particular timeout. Like I said, uh, we're very analytics-driven, and so I'll give them maybe a stat or stats or – depending on what year it is. We had a young team this last year and really struggled with turnovers. So, you know, how many turnovers do we have? Obviously like most coaches, like how many fouls does this guy have if we're in foul trouble or something like that? So, like what matters at that point in the game or what matters to our overall strategy. That's typically what we're talking about there in like those first few seconds. And then depending on how the rest of the timeout goes, like I said, most of the time he's talking with the team, um, every now and then I'll be the one that sits down and talks to him. Um, but that's, that's typically how most, most timeouts are handled.
1: All right. So we always have a top five. Okay. Um, so you, you, you see so much content, you talk to so many people, you talk to, awesome coaches uh we've talked to some awesome coaches that have you know very unique things so what are the uh, top five or it doesn't even have to be five just some of the most unique styles of play you've coached against talked about uh you know had conversations with coaches about
2: uh I'm always impressed by and the the few teams that are the ones that like press all the time um, we played the Citadel a few years ago when they pressed like all the time. And it was kind of funny. We, we hung with them. We were actually, I think tied, uh, or within like two or three at halftime. And then you could tell it was one of those games where the coach went in at halftime and got on his players and then came out and it kind of, they leveled up a, a notch, uh, and put on the press even more. So I think the teams that are able to press and wear you down, um, that's pressing is more than just effort and having players that are bigger, faster, and stronger. Like if you have a coach that really knows about pressing, it, it can really wear, wear the opponent down. Um, and so the combination of their style and the talent that they had, uh, was just kind of too much for us. I think we ended up losing by like 25 or 30 or something like that, but, um, I'm always impressed by those teams. So some, a team similar to that. Um, trying to think what else there there's a school down in georgia a lot of you probably know the head coach but there's a coaching friend of ours him and his assistant are coaching friends of ours um emmanuel college coach tj rosine and then coach graham maxwell i i admire the the heck out of those guys and they what they have done they they're on a lot of the rick torbert read and react um Uh, videos uh he's he's good friends with with coach rosine but they're a program that i think just offensively what they're able to do and the the talent that they have is super impressive um and they made the jump to division two a couple years ago and they've already i think they went to the round of 16 maybe this year in the division two national tournament and lost to i think lincoln memorial who lost in the national semifinal um, and what they've been able to do very quickly is just incredible. So if you're looking, if you're a read and react team, uh, I would, I would watch some Emmanuel college down in Franklin, Georgia. Um, but they're, they're great coaches. So I think just somebody that can execute with discipline and, and can do a system that maybe everybody knows about, but do it at a very high level is, is impressive to me. I already talked to you about coach Novak and what he does at Bethel. Uh, they're a D three program up in Minneapolis um, in Minnesota, Minnesota, Minneapolis area, or on the North side of Minneapolis. Um, but yeah, he's a phenomenal coach. He, he's conceptual offense. He was actually down at Citadel and was here at Anderson college for a while as well. And I think he was at Tulane as well. Um, but what he's doing up there, he's probably, I said this the other day to one of my friends one of my Twitter friends, but probably top three offensive coaching minds at any level in the country. Um, so he he would be another one. Those are my 3. I'm trying to think of a couple other ones. Uh I don't know if I can get to 5. Uh well, you're good.
1: It, it, it does, does not it, have to be 5. You're those good. are you're those good. are three tremendous examples right right there. Yeah,
2: probably, probably those three. I think just what I was saying, I think somebody who can execute at a high level something that everybody knows about but you can just tell that it's like they're practicing the work that they must be doing in practice. And I just talked to you about like coach Novak. I've, ha- I've been fortunate to go and watch his practices and his practices and how he teaches. It's very clear as to what the success that they have in the games. Um, and I think everybody would kind of know that, but my encouragement or my something that I would encourage coaches to think about is <clears throat> do your practices set you up for success in games? Or is it really no surprise what your practices look like based off of what your team looks like during a game? Um, So yeah, probably those three. I'd start with those three. If you're interested in looking at some, some teams to, to check out this off season.
0: We just had every listener write those three down. So I know what's going to be happening, but uh, coach, we are so thankful to have you on. We really enjoyed. There's always so much great content that comes from you um your podcast listeners if you haven't heard a quick timeout it's probably the closest uh podcast name to ours um obviously check out a quick timeout check out coach on fast model hoops forum uh, and, and check out some bob jones university basketball so coach thank you again for joining us today
2: appreciate you guys thanks for having me on
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the After the Timeout podcast. For more information and upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at After the Time or subscribe to our podcast for upcoming episodes. For show inquiries, you can email us at timeout at gmail.com. You can find all of our episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast and Apple Podcast by searching after The Timeout. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time for more basketball content on the court, off the court, and everything in between.